Welcome to the Humanity in the Loop podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My guest today is Michael Dila. Michael is a design and innovation leader, designer of conversation, and a steward of community. He is the project director for Oslo for AI, a year-long project that will invite participants to co-design a new kind of constitutional process for the governance of AI. Michael is also the founder of System 3 Coaching, focused on helping leaders navigate the dynamics of ethical and technical complexity. Today we are going to discuss Michael's views on the emergent intelligence of conversation and the ways Oslo for AI aims to create a forum for the important discussions we need to have about AI, artificial intelligence. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. My pleasure. So let's talk about System 3 thinking. Sure. Michael, you've introduced the concept of System 3 thinking, which connects to the ideas explored in the book, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. What is system three thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think the the easiest way to start to talk about it is um, how I started to recognize it. Um, and maybe that goes back as early as being a drama kid in high school uh, and becoming aware of what groups of people uh, in inter intimate and purposeful connection become capable of, both individually and collectively. Um, that was my introduction to collaboration. Probably a sang in a boys' choir when I was a kid. And so at, at some level, that also was an early lesson in collaboration and the sort of synthetic possibility that, that collaborating uh, en enables. But, but in particular, I started getting interested and have long been interested in how that kind of, um, th that kind of collaboration through the medium of conversation um, makes a certain kind of thinking and resources for thinking available that I don't think we have ready, easy explanation for uh, on the individual level. So I think that in certain kinds of conversations, we as individuals become part of something that is outside of ourselves, larger than ourselves, and into which we extend our consciousness um, and start to shear in something. And here we can sort of get woo-woo and metaphysical about what to call it. doesn't matter. Um, let's just call it conversation. Um, I mean, the problem with calling it conversation is that for a lot of people, that's a pedestrian word, um, which doesn't seem to, um, you know, call out something special. Um, there are certain kinds of conversations um, that uh, that are different from others. Um, the, the Austrian philosopher Ludwig, Wittgenstein um, sometimes called such conversations language games. Um, I was I was a uh, I was an academic philosopher in the early part of my life, um, and so that, that that provides some reference points. Um, then uh, I'll tell you the most proximate cause of the emergence of System Three into my thinking as such was um, someone uh, I was in in you know, intimate conversation with, uh, started talking about the, the difference between, uh, paces of things, um, particularly in work, um, and also the contrast between short-term views and thinking and long-term views. And, thinking. and obviously that's, uh, you know, that's a perennial trope, short versus long-term. Anyway, something reminded me of Kahneman in hearing that. Um, and I went back and started rereading, thinking fast and slow, got reacquainted with his 
uptake of System 1 and 2. And of course, Kahneman um, is, is brilliant. Um, and, and, you know, I also, um, you know, very, very, at the same time, read Michael Lewis's really great book, um, The Undoing Project, which is kind of the story of the relationship of Kahneman and his longtime and most important collaborator, um, Amos Tversky. And, um, and, and anyway, it struck me that System 1 and 2 uh, did not provide an account, I didn't think, of the kind of thinking that I was noticing and thought that we need to pay more attention to. And so, interrupt for a second. Yeah. Let's put on the table uh, for some of the listeners who aren't familiar with, with the book. Yep. Your, your thoughts on what System 1 and 2 are and how System 3 is positioned alongside it. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I just take my cues from Kahneman, who didn't originate the language of System 1 and 2, but very much made it his own. Um, and the way he describes or contrasts the two kinds of thinking um, is that System 1 is very fast. Um, he calls it automatic. Um, and it's, it's a kind of thinking um, in which we process uh, information and are able to give answers without really thinking um, in, in a liberative or conscious way, um, but, but move very quickly to processing an answer. System two, on the other hand, he calls slow, uh, uses words like deliberative, reflective. Um, it includes, although not, not exhausted by, um, you know, thinking about thinking, uh, uh, which as a philosopher, you know, resonates for me, but but, uh, but another big word in his description is effortful. And there's a lot of qualitative description in, in, in his work of, of the character of uh, both, both kinds of thinking. Um, he and Tversky was, were very interested in how uh, those two systems produce error, uh, and, and particularly errors in judgment. Um, and, um, and, you know, their thinking is kind of bedrock and foundational to what, you know, wasn't called at the time, but became called, has become called behavioral economics. And so, um, uh, a big part, you know, a, a big, you know, uh, continual trope in that work is the idea, uh, that's in all kinds of thinking. And this is a system one kind of mistake that automatic thinking, um, is often accompanied by, uh, by, by overconfidence um, in in one's uh, in, in one's knowledge uh, which actually turns out to be unreliable in, in, in many kinds of ways so that's some of the landscape of that um, but it but it it very much used close to a neurocentric uh, theory of mind um, where thinking is very much related to the brain um, and and correspondingly very much related to the individual because you know you have a brain i have a brain if that's where our minds are then we have necessarily different minds um and i guess you know where eyes are started to hit a big velocity of that kind of thinking uh originally was in thinking of the importance of language to thinking um the fact that thinking is almost universally expressed through the medium of language whether spoken language or not so even among the deaf, uh, in sign, um, you know, thinking is necessarily not only communicated, but, but experienced through communication and, 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 and some kind of speaking and language. Um, 
And uh, I, I think, you know, actually it was in a podcast I did with a friend ages ago where I first said out loud or thought out loud um, that the emergence of language in human, human society, human history, is the emergence of artificial intelligence. Artificial in the sense of um, intelligence that's enabled by an artifactual structure, right? Mm -hmm. um, again, language outside of outside of our bodies, externalized and embodied outside right. of the brain, right? Right, and and importantly, not just expressive or descriptive of inner states, right? But establishing um, a medium uh, through which um, we can share across minds across consciousness com not first firstly common uh, uh knowledge right i mean uh the things we are all seeing and participating in and, and and understanding but then i mean the real move into into the, the the expansion of that intelligence is when we start using it to think about the future right um to think about things talk about things through language that aren't present right um and if you think about just what I just described, using language to talk about things that aren't present in our experience, um, then how could that stately be a report from an internal state, right? Uh, it, that, that necessarily involves projection um, into, into something external, something larger that reaches beyond our... Um, you know, uh, it reaches beyond our lived experience, uh, of course, in many cases. You said something earlier about <clears throat> the pace of things. Yep. And that, to me, maybe maybe we're on the same wavelength. That, to me, put System 3 on the spectrum at the far end from System 1. System 1 is like, I already know the answer. It just popped in my head. I don't need to do any thinking. It's a lazy, expedient way. Then you have System 2, which is more deliberative, but at least I could do it at my desk. System three is going to take forever because I got to rope other people in and they're probably not going to agree with me. And yet, probably the outcome is going to be better because I'm in, in, I'm getting multiple people's input. I'm sorry, my internet is uh, slowing down there, but I, I don't know if you yeah. caught some of that. I, I, I think I did. Um, but but um, I, the, the part that I got at the end was uh, connecting to other people's input. So right. maybe you get it. Yeah, uh, I, I guess what I was saying is that, that that when you said pacing, the pacing of system one is immediate. Yeah, pacing of system two, I can do at my desk. The pacing of system three, I need to involve other people, which is slower. People are people. That's why the people get frustrated with the UN or any committee. Yeah. So so the other thing. Oh wait. So okay, are we unfrozen? I just wanted. To, I saw you freeze again. Freeze again. There we go. Okay, that's all right. That's all right. Um, the uh, so so on pacing and speed. Um, so here's the thing, uh, you know, and perhaps this is paradoxical. Perhaps I just like like the log jamming the idea of time here. Um, but in conversation uh, and in immer immersive emergent system three thinking. Um, I think we enter what uh, Chick sent me high called the uh, flow state. Mm -hmm. um, when conversation is going well, 
uh, it flows. Um, and often the way that flow is described is that time, uh, self and ego, uh, fall away. Um, and so, um, you know, temporarily like in clock time, maybe it's slower. <laughs> um, but in terms of experience, um, I think, um, the experience is primarily not one of time, but but I think of of a kind of expansion, right? That, that's how I I think of the experience and and, and have the experience is. Um, I feel like you know one I I analogize being in uh, a a powerful conversation as literally being in a flow like a, in a river like sitting you know sitting together in a raft being moved by a force that is none of you which you are all being moved by in a kind of, in a kind of harmony. Um, but also that, um, that being in that state is to feel enlarged. Um, you know, one, one does have a sense of, of a, I do anyway, of an expansion of vision, um, an expansion of perception. Um, and, 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 that's not automatic. I mean, one one could become more adept at that uh, through through a practice. Um, I mean, you know, we talk about all kinds of um, frames around uh, listening, um, uh, active listening, and various other you know kinds of um, forms forms of deliberate uh, attunement. And that that is that is definitely those are things are that are a practice as opposed to you know natural states or whatever. Uh, are, are, are built in states. Um, but, but that expansion into, into each other's, uh, consciousness, I think makes available things that are not available to us individually. So you mentioned flow and one realm where flow often occurs is when we're playing games, time mm. can fly. Yep. Um, and it's also a structured format yep. of how you spend time. How do games prepare us for system three thinking? Yeah. So, um, I think that games, uh, just are system three. <laughs> um, they, they, they just are a system three, um, type activity. Um, I think, you know, if we're getting, you know, if, if we wanted to get anthropological here, I think that's why we have games. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, to train us, um, in, in system three thinking. Um, and, and I'll say two things, uh, and I love, I love the connection to games and, and, and love thinking about this and exploring this, but, um, uh, one, um, system three, uh, is fun. Um, like, you know, um, in the way that play and games are fun, right? Which is not always ha ha fun, right? I mean, um, you know, we can think of, uh, of, of, you know, board games, card games, uh, you know, sort of light games to put it a certain way, um, as, as a certain kind of fun. Um, but, but also, you know, some of the games that we care most about, um, uh, and, and, uh, you know, are, are the most immersive in play are, are hard. Um, you know, so th think of any, uh, athletic team sport, uh, um, and you have a model for, of course, rigorous, vigorous play. Um, and the fun of that, um, 
you know, the fun of that, it, it, you know, is experienced and expressed in a bunch of ways. I've done a lot of thinking, you know, I'm, I'm not a super sporto guy and I'm, I'm not super literate uh, in, in sport, but I've done a lot of reflecting on why soccer or, or football, as the Europeans call it or everyone else calls it, um, is called the beautiful game. Um, and, um, and there is something, there is something I think, um, in, in being in the game that generates, uh, an aesthetic, not, not the aesthetic of the spectacle, although that, that is another thing. Uh, but I think it is to be inside of and to make together a beautiful world, um, a beautiful model of. Um, and I think I think that's what I, I think that's what games again um, make possible for us. Um, the experience of uh, particular other spectral kinds of worlds, um, and that in those worlds, um, you know, uh, different things different things are made possible because of what the rules uh, allow or permit or make. How possible. does the concept of System Three help leaders with challenges of high technical and ethical complexity. Yeah. So here, <laughs> um, so here we we um, uh, have um, uh, so so the the there there. Let me parse two two questions there. One is how can it be helpful uh, to leaders or teams in doing work that has high ethical and technical complexity. Um, and so how is it useful? And second is, uh, how do they do it? How do they use it? So, I mean, how it's useful is, um, system three, because it makes a collective resource that is very dynamic and expansive available. System three is made for navigating complexity. And I mean, Literally, like I'm not so interested, and I'm really not so interested in evolutionary explanation. Um, so, like, let's let's not get hung up on the on, on the what it's built for in some again sort of evolutionary anthropological sense. But my hypothesis in in sort of articulating System Three is um, that we need System Three in order to navigate complexity together. And that is partly an explanation for why, by and large, our negotiating with complexity doesn't go so well, because we're not in System 3. We're not accessing System 3. Um, and that gets to the how. Um, you know, um, the way that we design a lot of work um, we design around models of individual contribution and individual um, performance, right? Um, and not so much, notwithstanding the language of teams that we often use, I think, and often lazily lose, use. Um, there isn't, uh, um, I think, in lots of work, truly collective and collaborative uh, work. Um, where we find the highest performance work in almost any field, we find system three thinking and system three activity. Again, my, my, my hypothesis, um, you know, there, 
there is for sure thinking um, which appears to be um, uh, not only possible in isolation, uh, but some might even argue that it's uh, that isolation is necessary for that kind of thinking. Um, and you know, I would say that uh, that, that there's certainly there, there's certainly cognition um, that that is available to us privately. Um, like that, we'd be, I'd be silly to to discount that. There's just so much evidence otherwise. But but especially thinking, and let's just think about math here, uh, which is which is far out of my area of expertise. But <laughs> but I, I use it because it's it's such a common example uh, that, that's drawn out, um, you know, uh, uh, as, as the kind of thinking that belongs to the individual genius, right? Right. Um, but but the mathematician is always in conversation, right? Because they are navigating problems which come from the conversation, right? Which is their area of mathematics um, and to which others have made contributions and are making contributions and with whom their work and their problem solving is necessarily engaged. So irrespective of the fact they may spend hours sitting alone in some whatever <laughs> grotto, um, you know, I, I think the idea that they are on that account isolated as thinkers uh, um, is is just a false picture of reality. Um, that said, it's also true, you know, um, in in math um, and other forms of science, and then of course many many other human pursuits, um, that really serious work necessarily involves conversation and community, right? Um, and that progress is made precisely um, in uh, that uh, in the context of and through the medium of. Uh, conversation and what it backs up into, which is which is a human community um, around a particular, uh, you know, whether it's a discipline, area of knowledge, um, uh, a path of inquiry, what what have you. Uh, um, you know, one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite examples um, uh, of the dramatization of this um, is. A, a documentary on particle physics, which I'm sure to lots of people just sounds like they want to run out and start watching that right now. Right. Uh, even finish listening to this podcast. Yeah, yeah, please stay. Yeah. Walk, don't run. Um, yeah, so uh, there's a film um, called Particle Fever, and um, it was um, it was a documentary made of, I, over a period, of, I, I think about, about a year and a half, maybe a couple of years, um, that documented the work of teams who were doing uh, and preparing to run the very first experiments at the Large Hadron Collider um, uh, at CERN, um, and you know the the film does an amazing job at dramatizing a whole number of things, but like for me, I watched that film and it just like it may as well have flashing System Three you know, captions throughout, right? Um and um and 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 one of the things that 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 uh, distracts us from this, especially in the case of 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 CERN, is this massive piece of apparatus, right? Um that is that that is the world's largest collider, super glider. 
Um, it's such a fascinating piece of machinery. Uh, it's it's so complex. Um, and, you know, anyone could be forgiven for thinking that the machine is what we're all here uh, for. But in fact, it's exactly the reverse. The machine is here for us. The machine exists to enable progress in certain collective community conversations, right? That is that is what the advancement of science consists in. Um, and this is an instrument in facilitating that conversation. Um, likewise, I mean, that gives us a lens into thinking about the role of machines, particularly, you know, as we start to talk about the possibility of uh, intelligent machines, whatever that might mean, um, you know, um, and, and, and here, here, um, I think the, the really, the really interesting thing is, you know, and this has been a conversation for, you know, at least a hundred years, um, about how machines that think as the phrase has, you know, that was how, how Turing put it, um, uh, how those machines would be different from the other kinds of machines that we made. Um, and then the question that doesn't occur, uh, occur actually to much more recently, um, certainly was no part of Turing's thinking, but what would our relationship to such machines be? Oh, right. Um, and I think actually that's a really fertile and interesting and under, uh, uh, discussed area in, in the current, you know, uh, technology conversation about the emergence of various new forms of, of, you know, what people hope might be machine intelligence. Uh, That's a perfect segue. So let's oh. talk about Oslo for AI, uh, sure. which, is, which is reckoning with these issues. Yeah. Um, speaking of, uh, Daniel Kahneman today, I stumbled across the 2021 guardian article, which quotes him saying, clearly AI is going to win. How people are going to adjust is a fascinating problem. So the Oslo for AI project, to me, strikes me as a reaction to this fascinating problem, or dare I say, opportunity. Mm. What are the goals of the project? Yeah, so so I think goal one is to create, uh, you know, the phrase that I've been using around the project is that it hopes to introduce new possibilities for participation uh, uh, here in the context of AI. Um, so I think that most of us are not truly participants, um, in the conversation. What most of us are is, um, bystanders, um, and receivers of information. That information is, uh, very narrativized. Um, the, the there are a couple of dominant narratives. This is a well-rehearsed, uh, thought here. So hardly my own, uh, the doom narrative and the exuberant optimist narrative, um, both of those as all extreme narratives are, you know, I think naive, um, and, and wrong in a bunch of ways. And, and beyond that, especially for people who, who are again, bystanders and receivers rather than participants, um, uh, those, um, you know, some, someone I know, John Hagel, uh, made a, a contrast between narratives and stories and, and the way he makes that contrasts fundamentally, uh, I'll, I'll butcher a little bit his eloquence, but fundamentally for the purposes of this conversation is a narrative is a thing in which we are, we are participants. 
we can imagine ourselves as participants as having a role. A story is about something that happens to others that we we are we can only be onlookers to. And right now, we are many of us, most of us, caught in the story of AI rather than a narrative that we have a way into. Um, and and the and the ways in which participation is available to us primarily are not uh, um, in the conversation uh, so much as in the use of some of the early products uh, of AI. And for sure, some of these are super interesting uh, and compelling, right? I mean, um, whatever uh, their status uh, on, on, on any scale of intelligence is, there's no way around the fact that, that what these uh, programs, computer programs, which is, you know, at the end of the day, what they are, uh, do, right? Um, and, um, and here, here's another dynamic, I think, in where many of us sit relative to um, uh, how, how we think about uh, what these things are um, and, and, and therefore our relationship to them, which is um, that let's just pick chat GPT and, and mid-journey as examples. Um, both of these things um, do magic tricks. And here's what I mean by that. Um, both of those things are determinate systems, right? They're um, they're highly explainable. Um, not not in the sense that uh, they don't involve black boxes, because in in both cases they, they they do. But but insofar as how they work, uh, which is to say, um, they run on code that uh, humans have written, that run on machines that humans have made. Uh, that are made of things that we understand, so on, right? There, there is a there there is a system, a determinant system that makes up uh, what these things are made of and and how they work. Um, and we give them inputs, right? We, we ordinary folk now are able to access these incredibly powerful systems. Uh, we give them inputs, and and then. To use a phrase of the brother of Robert Oppenheimer, Frank Oppenheimer, and then something wonderful happens. You know, we feed ChatGPT a simple prompt, and in an instant, you know, this this res response, right? Um, and and what appears to be uh, the product of thought, uh, the product of of deliberation, uh, the um, a response to us, right? And so, so we are drawn into a relationship, right? And 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 this the the chat interface invites this as well. We we we've been invited into the interaction construct of a relationship, right? Um, a thing, a someone, a something that we're interacting with. Uh, and of course, you know, we already have the template in our heads from from you know uh, chat interfaces. Like Siri and Alexa, that have been personified, and even even though ChatGPT doesn't have a name, um, you know, we still, you know, have started to treat it not as if it were a person, but as if it were something more than just a computer program. Yeah, it has a personality. Yeah, um, and um, and 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 it's even more, uh, in some ways, it's even more remarkable. Um, to, to use some of the image generation programs 
Um, and I was just, I was just looking again at something, um, uh, you know, before we were talking, which was, um, you know, one of the most, uh, interesting things that I've seen around, um, uh, around, uh, image generation, which is, uh, the New York Times Magazine, uh, ran a piece, an opinion piece, uh, with a, um, a filmmaker, um, who had used, I'm pretty sure it was Mid Journey, had used it to imagine, uh, what if, uh, yeah, Yaradowski, who fam famously, the filmmaker who famously, um, you know, imagined making the first film of Dune, uh, which was in fact never made, but created an incredible library of artwork and thinking around it. Um, and what, what this filmmaker did was went to Mid Journey and prompted it to generate production stills, production images from Yaradowski's version of the film Tron, which of course he had never had anything to do with. <laughs> and it produced this amazing uh, artwork. Um, and it's really, like, it's quite impressive. I mean, I I, 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 I was looking for the link. Uh, I'll find it to send you later. But, um, you know, people people should see it because it's, it's quite breathtaking, uh, the, the images. And, um, and again, you know, it is literally almost impossible for us to imagine that it, this isn't the product of a thinking thing, <laughs> right? I mean, how else can we explain something that that came that came out of nothing that came out of nothing more than our words um and yet and yet we can explain it right um it's the output of a machine um and a machine that no one would tell you uh even the most um you know uh uh breathless of its makers would tell you is, is actually thinking um and yet um so what is it doing um and and um and and also, um, what kinds of relationship um, do we already have? Could we already have to to these very prototypical, very early um, forms of, of such machines? Um, and um, what do we want from them uh, for ourselves? Um, you know, um, Kevin Kelly, uh, you know, famously um, uh, had the phrase, you know, what what does technology want? Um, you know, and I think, I think we're in a dynamic, um, with the emerging technologies of AI, particularly the ones that invite our interaction and many don't, um, many run in the background without our awareness, but the kinds in which, in which our interaction is, um, you know, what's on offer, um, you know, what does it want from us? What do we want from it? Uh, how are we figuring this out? Um, and this is. It's fascinating terrain. Um, I think. I think what um, you know, what there is to be concerned about, uh, and I'm not on board uh, with people, and whether this is reason, people's reasonable fears or no, I just don't share them. Um, I, I I don't fear killer robots. I don't fear you know uh, intelligences that that get the idea. Oh, you know, maybe maybe we'd all be better off without these humans. Although. You know, perhaps perhaps they would be involved in planetary thinking on that account. But, um, uh, but um, but I do think that um, you know, we already have lots of evidence um, that when humans invent new technologies, 
um, we sometimes often uh, use them to do awful things yeah. um, to our fellows. Uh, and um, and this is powerful technology. Um, and I think, you know, digital, ubiqu ubiquitous, pervasive digital technology has introduced technologies of control, uh, technologies of exploitation, um, that are unprecedented uh, in both their power and their reach. Um, and we have all willingly walked into a machine and now live in a fully technologized environment that is, I think, quite literally inescapable for mo most of us. Um, and and yet, I don't think we're powerless to, uh, to choose how we live inside and how we live with uh, that reality. And so... Oslo um, wants to uh, wants to create a a purposeful space in which people walking working across um, institutional and sectoral boundaries um, in AI um, can think beyond the walls of their current local conversations structured by the institutions they live in day to day, um, and to imagine together um, the kinds of futures that we want. Uh, in in using and in relating to these emerging technologies. So, uh, how did you come up with the name Oslo for AI? Yeah, so it was inspired by the Oslo peace process of the 1990s. Um, and um, what I, uh, I my route into that was was through um, a 2021 film called Oslo, which was made after uh, a play. Um, of the same name, um, and the film dramatizes um, the uh, the way in which uh, the Oslo uh, process was insinuated into a larger um, peace effort that was being brokered at the time by the Clinton White House. Um, it was the first time. Um, that the Prime Minister of Israel and the Chairman of the PLO uh, were ostensibly in, going to be involved in direct negotiations. Um, I mean, the very existence of, of that conversation, you know, introduced like at least the the de facto acknowledgement of each other's, at some sense, some kind of baseline legitimacy. So that 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 was a very big and an important thing. Um, but I think in the judgment of these two Norwegians, a husband and wife, uh, um, the, the woman who was a diplomat in, in the Norwegian, um, government and the, uh, the, the man, um, a, uh, a leader in a, in a peace building think tank, um, believed that the negotiations weren't actually going well. And in fact, they would fail and that there was too much at stake to allow that to happen. Uh, and they had some different ideas uh, about how to go about uh, doing peace negotiations. Um, and they very surreptitiously uh, introduced the possibility of an alternate process running in parallel to the official visible process. Um, and the two things um, that were uh, important about that alternative process were that it was small and away from the big out front main stage uh uh and and 
institutionally bound uh, conversation that was the state of the larger uh, public peace negotiation. Um, and that immersive, intimate, and intentional participation were the requirements. Um, the film dramatizes very well uh, the idea that, uh, that part of the process, part of the, the design of the process, was to, um, you know, lock people in a room uh, uh, while they negotiated, um, and, uh, and, 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 um, and, and only come out for meals and, um, and, uh, and, and, and relaxation, but that when they came out, they had to be social. They had, in, in the phrase of the film, they had to be friends. Mm. Um, and so very much at the heart of that was, was relationship building, um, as, a, as a necessary, ally to the work of thinking um that was uh you know that that was the most visible part of yeah of the activity of the peace negotiations in that process but but i think that those were not two things right that they were one thing um that they were one design um and that kind of design is is the kind of design i'm interested in using um in the oslo for ai uh, activity which which will be constituted in the main by a set of small uh, retreats, um, the nine, nine in all for eight to 12 people at a time uh, with only a couple of facilitators um, and which will last for three full days in which those people will be together remote in, in some remote place um, and to spend all of their time together, not just working time, but playing time, relaxing time. Um, and and the intent of that is to make available to them individually and collectively um, a kind of cognitive capacity that isn't available to them day to day in their work, um, and therefore um, creates affordances for thinking uh, for thinking of things. So an, an embodiment of System Three thinking. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Yeah. Who is invited and what are the main activities and objectives for these events? Yeah. So we will, um, we will be using the networks that we are establishing in all of the geographies in which we're doing the retreats to recruit candidates to be participants. Um, we're trying to create in the group of candidates, um, all kinds of relevant forms of diversity. Um, from diversity of experience, uh, uh, both professional and lived experience, um, to uh, to some kind of um, sectoral representativeness. So, you know, as, as an example, um, you know, in any given instance, we would want somebody who's working in the field of commercial AI, somebody who's working entrepreneurially in the space, somebody who's working um, in some kind of uh, government uh, context. Uh, an NGO context, um, a community uh, context. One of the more recent ones um, that I've started to think about is people in faith-based organizations. Um, so, um, so some uh, uh, um, some kind of requisite diversity um, of of experience, exposure, um, and what they have in common um, is an interest and a desire to participate in particularly thinking about the governance of AI 
in ways that are limited by or constrained in in un unwelcome ways by their daily environments. Um, so we we're going to use you know going to use our network to identify candidates and something that we're very much in the process of process of designing is once we've identified a group of candidate participants, how will we select uh, from from those uh, candidates? Um, and again, um, we will be doing that in a way that that is intended to create uh, groups that we think have something to teach and learn from each other. Um, and that that learning not only has value to people as individuals, but uh, but has value in connecting those people so that they have a persistent effect beyond the retreat. Um, because, you know, one, one of the two most important uh, hoped for impacts are that we are sending participants out of this experience changed in some important way individually, um, enlarged uh, in, in their perceptions and awareness and, and, and sense of possibility, uh, but also connected in new ways um, and therefore collect, have, have a new connection to a new collective um, that they can use in ways which, you know, it's not our, our work to, to imagine or prescribe, um, but simply to, to, to make available. So th those are the big um, uh, uh, intentions um, around what you ask. So this is a, a sprawling effort, uh, multiple nations, multiple people, multiple um, facilitators. How, how is Oslo for AI funded? Uh, well, <laughs> through, through the kindness of, uh, of, of many w will be the answer. Um, so r right now, um, just before Christmas, um, I set an initial, you know, small, uh, fundraising goal to raise $75,000, um, which, uh, very well economized can see the project through, um, it's, it's first quarter and a bit. So, um, I think I can run all of the, the, the designed activities, the planned activities through April, um, on that initial amount. And I, um, I set out to do, you know, what I described as a friends, family and angels round. Um, I've raised money, uh, from investors before, uh, doing, doing commercial startups. Um, this is not commercial, so it, it's a philanthropic effort. Um, and so, uh, so initially I've been going hand to hand to people, uh, in, you know, close to me in my networks, um, and have been making really two kinds of asks. One, uh, for people with capacity to, to make, uh, contributions of about $5,000. Um, and I've had a, a, a number of those so far. Um, and then also um, a, um, a monthly donation structure where people can contribute some regular monthly amount for the, for, for the entire year. Um, and, and so at the moment, that's the current approach to funding. That's not sufficient. Um, I think we're going to have to raise another, certainly another 500K beyond that. Um, and depending on how the scope we're working on evolves, maybe more like 750. So that's a little bit in, in, in flux. And that's money that I intend to raise, um, from major funders, um, and, uh, major philanthropic funders. Um, there, the good news is that the funding environment, uh, for this kind of project is, is 
more favorable than it's ever been. There's obviously the enormous uh, public um, and and philanthropic interest in um, in AI technology and its impact on people and society. Um, so a great number of large uh, funders have publicly declared, um, particularly toward the end of last year, um, the commitment of tens of millions and in the aggregate hundreds of millions of dollars to support AI and society programming. Um, and so I'm hoping to to raise from, uh, you know, our small amount from that pool of funding. Um, very possibly also there will be contributions from, from um, you know, uh, single single donors, uh, high net worth donors um, who have the capacity to, to make more significant contribution. Um, I really, you know, I, in, in, in the in the first raising that I did, I really did want to build, use that fundraising effort also to build community and commitment, um, because um, this isn't investment in me or even in the individuals who who will be the the producers in some sense of of um, the opportunity of AI, but supportive of this kind of participation. Uh, that I think we should all want more of, right? So, so I I see this as a way to contribute to the building of more democratic, more inclusive, more diverse kinds of participation in the sphere. Um, so that's what I hope to engage people in in investing in, um, and um, and so uh, lots of work to do on that front. Um, miles to go before we sleep, but. Um, we, we've made it a good start. So one possible outcome of these meetings is a stronger sense of how to successfully organize a forum for this purpose. Right. Uh, given the broad interest in wrestling with the issues that AI raises, you have you considered models like franchising? I use that in air quotes. Right. Like uh, similar to the way that TEDx is a cookie cutter of the TED conference. Right. Would you allow organizations to hold their own events in the same mold to broaden your impact? Yeah, so for sure, part of what we think we're up to here is developing an approach which we want to have an open sourcey kind of attitude about. So, you know, part of part of the philanthropic, uh, um, you know, approach to support uh, has the intent that how we do this um, is part of the uh, is part of what the, the 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 project generates as as an outcome, um, and that. We make the that that process uh, and those designs and those approaches um, available to all to use um, and and to uh, adapt as they see fit. So I have been lucky to be a part of a number of such kind of open sourcey uh, um, efforts. Um, most most notably, you know, my friend Alex Osterwalder, who created the business model canvas, uh, and from the beginning. Um, wanted to be very open uh, and non-proprietary about the core technology. Um, and the core technology, you know, the, the business model campus, um, as, as it has long been called, um, first of all, I mean, has been copied and adapted in many, many kinds of ways. I mean, it's quite incredible how it's proliferated. Um, uh, and it's a really, you know, at the end... It, it's a really powerful design structure. Um, what many miss, um, you know, even those who use it, is 
that the entire purpose of that structure and that tool, and I would say, describe it as a technology, is to enable a conversation that wasn't possible before that tool existed. Because people didn't know what business models were, even people who worked around the language of business models, because very few people had actually ever envisioned one, right? Um, and it, it sounds perhaps simplistic that simply drawing a picture, uh, even, even a quite structural and schematic picture of a business model and how it works uh, might, the, the value that might have. But, um, but in fact, and I've always said this because, you know, I'm sure you've seen a business model campus is a single, you know, can, can be, can be, and is often rendered on a single sheet of paper. And, and in fact, that's partly how it's used. Um, it is a framework that quite literally puts people on the same page. Could not, but for that technology, have been on the same page. And so it is incredibly powerful enabling technology. And it is, it is an example um, of which, you know, we could multiply examples. Um, you know, that's, uh, and, and this is another big idea at the heart of, of this project, that's what a constitution is. So a lot of people think that a constitution is simply a written document, right? Um, what they miss is that what a constitution, that, that may be the artifact of the constitution, but the constitution is an enabling structure that makes possible certain kinds of conversations. Um, and those conversations are the things that quite literally constitute our legal systems and the order that we often refer to as rule of law, like those are constituted by nothing more than structures that enable certain kinds of conversations and those conversations themselves, right? That is how we make that stuff happen. Um, and one of the things that this project envisions is to actually create a new kind of constitutional assembly so that people can not only see, but actually participate in what it is to make a constitution. Because though, particularly in this side of the world where the American constitution um, is perhaps, you know, one of the, one of the most visible and, and uh, uh, you know, known examples of, of, a, of a democratic constitution, um, the remoteness of how that thing came into existence, um, you know, prevents most people from realizing that uh, a group of people met and talked uh, and brought this thing into being and used it to envision the possibility of a new kind of society. Um, and that uh, talking produced an artifact um, that became the anchor um, uh, and, and the enabling structure for a system uh, which has continued to exist and function, right? for over 200 years. And while there's certainly things that we can be critical about in that system, um, it's undeniable um, that the system, um, you know, uh, has been both effective um, and valuable in, in a bunch of ways. Um, so the also for AI process uh, is trying to, uh, as you say, uh, well, as I interpret, sort of look at ways that we can harness AI, both in terms of using it and also constraining it, like having governance around that. But I, I feel like it's also um, 
the, well, I want to move on to the promise and peril of AI. And I'm yep. conscious of the fact that you're sort of deliberately reserving judgment, hoping that Oslo for AI will will come up with better conclusions than you might on your own. So I, I, I apologize, but I'm still very curious to know what yep. your thoughts are on AI. Sure. So let's start with something rosy, and that is describe the best possible world with cheap, powerful AI. What does it look like? Yeah. So one of the things that that I'm actually uh, uh, terrifically excited for the possibility of is that AI, you know, this again, surprise, surprise will be related to conversation, um, that, um, that AI uh, could intervene and help us in one of the most fraught um, dynamics of human conversation, um, which is that we bring to conversation individually and collectively uh, forms of unconscious bias. Um, and of course, the deep problem with unconscious bias is very hard for us to see and change because we can't see it. <laughs> um, uh, the idea that AI could help us become much more aware of, mindful of, and coach us in, uh, um, you know, uh, new uh, behaviors around um, around challenging and overcoming our, our bias uh, is something really exciting. And in fact, you know, the, one of the ways in which this project started was that I spent much of 2022 working on a venture concept to build an AI that that did. Or, or, or started to work on the problem of doing just that. Um, of uh, uh, it, you know, it was the, the 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 idea at the heart of it was some, something that I called our teacher, and and the idea um, is that it would uh, listen to and eventually learn to participate in our conversations um, and be able to observe to us individually and collectively um, where we were going wrong. Um, uh, in terms of being misguided uh, by by our biases, so so I think uh, I think a world in which you know and, and to sort of state it most boldly, um, you know I uh, rather than imagine that uh, AI, for example, um, is just the latest and potentially worst and most damaging weapon in the arsenal of of white supremacy, uh, would like to imagine and can imagine a future. Um, in which, uh, in fact, um, machine intelligence becomes a powerful ally in uh, in dismantling uh, architectures of dominance um, and oppression. So I, I find that fascinating and exciting and, and possible. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, let's go to the other hand, human history is the drumbeat of new technologies that both threaten livelihoods and create new opportunities. AI feels very different, though. Technologies like the tractor and the loom only put out uh, put one profession at risk at a time. AI seems to threaten all professions, including those of people who are often thought as invulnerable, like doctors, lawyers, engineers, accountants. Is there a reason for alarm? Yeah, so for sure there is. So, And people have been sounding the alarm uh, for some time in the form of, you know, and I... Certainly, there have been conversations at least for the last 10 years um, that these technologies were going to cause uh, massive uh, unemployment and the obsolescence of, of all kinds of human labor. Um, so, 
you know, on the one hand, we're a ways away from, you know, the full scope and scale of that effect, I think. But there's no question that, you know, uh, the commercial interest in AI uh, is is entirely centered around the premise um, that uh, these technologies will obviate the, the need for all, all kinds of expensive labor. Like that is simply the commercial project. That's why the money's flowing in. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And when you know, when I, I heard somebody uh, uh, from IBM who was convening a panel at Davos talk about you know the, the the commercial promise of AI in terms of trillions of dollars of productivity gains was the phrase. Well, I, I leave it to reader. <laughs> what product? Where does that trillion come from? Well, well yeah, and 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 what what you what we what we can use as a basis for inference is the size uh, of that. And, and you know, if, 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 if any part of that, and of course, almost all of that, is the envisioning of obsolescing uh, uh, expensive forms of human labor, um, you know, trillions, last I checked, big number. Uh, we're in big number territories. So, so that is, you know, that is already happening. Um, and, you know, while I'm not, you know, uh, uh, an uh, on the inevitability train of all kinds of, you know, things about AI that people seem to like. So I'm not at all on the train of the inevitability of super intelligence, whatever, in fact, that might mean um, a very imprecise term anyway. Um, but for sure, I think that this is going to affect particularly work in ways that are unprecedented in their scope and scale. That is a given. Um, and, and that is, you know, the, the, the thing that I think is going to be really, uh, really shocking, um, and maybe COVID in a certain kind of way, uh, it gives us, um, some, some basis for anticipating the, the shock of this experience is, um, the speed of the proliferation of this technology, um, is, is incredible and, the effects uh, are going to be are, are going to be felt uh, really fast. So they will go for from you know experiences on the margins to massive, uh, uh, I think, uh, experiences across everyone's lives in just the way that you know COVID went from like a flu that we were all vaguely worried about, skeptical of, to you no, know, really, the world is closing for business and and all kinds of other things, right? I mean, like that was shocking. Yeah. Uh, but, but we all know now that that's a thing that could happen. Yeah. And many of us expect that whether pandemic or some other thing, that kind of, uh, that kind of event is going to happen again. So that's troubling for sure. So last question, this has been a great conversation, Michael. Thank you. Um, there's an, you mentioned super intelligence, but there's this term super alignment as well. Yep. Uh, there's an idea that we should see control of our lives to artificial intelligence once we once we find mechanisms for what is called super alignment, ensuring that our digital overlords act in ways that are beneficial to humanity and presumably humans, like the computer and space odyssey, but better. I guess is the idea. Yep. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. So um, so. I think uh, <laughs> trying to 
think of a way of responding to it that doesn't sound dismissive. Um, you know, um, uh, I think, I think it's an unnecessary idea. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what we want out of, out of that idea. Here's the thing that we, that we already, I think very dangerously placed our trust in, uh, which I think is, though it may not seem to people immediately, uh, I, I think it is a direct analog. Um, I think we made this mistake with the machine that we call democracy. Um, I think that we thought that building um, a uh, a rational legal order uh, through which to govern society, um, we could build a system that generated automatically and progressively the goods of, uh, promised by the democratic values. Um, and I think particularly the last 20 years, but, you know, backing up from there, there's lots of other evidence. Um, <laughs> we were silly to place our trust in the, uh, in the automata, um, of, of, of those structures. Um, those structures are virtuous when they are rigorously engaged with by their human makers and human participants. So right. not just pulling a lever every four years. 100%. 100%. And not just presided over by elite overlords, um, you know, uh, analogous to the overlords of the, you know, that run a factory floor, right? So the idea... The, the idea that somehow, you know, we will build a technology that we can trust so absolutely um, that it could be a proxy and, and finally the ultimate real, realization of the embodiment of our common wheel, as, as you know, English, English political thought used, used to have it. Um, yeah, I think it's fantastical. And, and I, don't think it's, I don't think it's necessary. And I certainly don't think it's interesting. Um, I, I don't think it will ever... Uh, the idea... The, the other idea is... Um, it, 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 it tends, I think, inevitably to a certain kind of reductionism. Um, for, firstly, technologically, it, it, it's reductive um, because it requires to operate reducing all kinds of things to computational frameworks. And I think that's just a fool's errand from, from the beginning. Um, I think the other thing is there is all kinds of richness in human traditions, human culture uh, that we that, that we sh should want to better share, amplify, uh, and pluralize rather than w winnow down um, and and make more singular and and mono. Um, so I I mean I betray myself as a cosmopolitan here, um, you know, living living in Toronto much of the time as I know you do. Um, you know, I feel, uh, I feel, um, that I don't live in a perfect kind of city, but, uh, but in a cosmopolitan city, the kind of city that I think has the most promise. Um, and I think that's a model for, uh, that's the kind of model we should have in our heads for the future of all kinds of governments, that kind of pluralism, that kind of, that kind of diversity, that kind of multiculturalism, that kind of mosaic. Right, I mean that great that great Canadian uh, uh, contribution to the imagination of of uh, of a political reality that is a mosaic uh, 
that doesn't break uh, or melts down um, the the uh, the richness of of uh, the diversity of of human culture, um, but creates a unity, uh, a beautiful unity of the pieces. Uh, it's a, it's an idea, you know. Again, it, it, you know, notwithstanding the melting pot um, uh, attribution of the United States, you know, the U.S. motto "E pluribus unum," out of many, one. It's very much in harmony with that idea. I think these are ideas that we need to we need to reinvigorate in in certain ways, not not return to, but bring it forward uh, to imagine to imagine new and better futures. Um, because we've still got a long way to go in, uh, in the projects, um, that we want. Uh, but I'm, you know, I, I, I believe that if we want to, um, and if we enable, if we, if we make it possible for people, um, to, to more broadly participate in creating the terms of the futures that we might live inside. And we have a much better chance of using these powerful new technologies to help us make progress together. That's very encouraging. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Tim. My guest today was Michael Dila. Michael can be reached on LinkedIn, and a link to information on Oslo for AI will be in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Humanity in the Loop podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests of this podcast are their own and do not reflect those of their employer or any other affiliation. Humanity is not automatic.